Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you here today. It's a great day to be at church. I am so glad to see every single one of you. Today we're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, titled, we titled the series, Live Like This. It's, this is our third week into it, but I, we can already tell. I can already tell why this is the greatest sermon that, has been ever, that was ever preached uh, by Jesus Christ. So if you write your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find the verses in your Baywatch. That's our program. When you walked in, hopefully you received one. And you can also follow along on the app. But this morning, all the verses are listed there in your Baywatch, and we've got some fill-ins as well. Now, just to refresh your memory, uh, the Sermon on the Mount begins when Jesus goes up onto the mountain. Actually, it's more like a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And it's from that vantage point that he speaks to the disciples and to a larger crowd about the, on the topic of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so the first thing he describes in, in the very beginning, Matthew chapter 5, is what we call the Beatitudes. And these are the characteristics of someone who is a part of the kingdom of God. Someone who is a, part, a kingdom citizen is, is what we called it. Now if you look closely at what he said in the Beatitudes, you can't help but notice that what he's speaking about is the inner man. It is, it is the, the posture of the man's heart, the attitude of a man's heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This kind of this realization that I am broken inside. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who, uh, that's kind of the reaction to being broken and that you're a sinner, the realization that you're a sinner. Blessed are the meek. This kind of this gentleness, this gentle spirit just kind of overtakes you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this attitude of just wanting more of God. Blessed are the merciful, this attitude of compassion that begins to manifest itself toward others. Blessed are the pure in heart, not wanting anything to come between you and God. Blessed are the peacemakers, this attitude of wanting to help others make peace with, with each other and with God. And then these are all the attitudes of the heart. And if, and if these are the attitudes of your heart and in your actions as well, what's going to happen? Well, you'll be persecuted, right? That we, talked, we looked at that blessed of the persecuted. And then last week, we saw the kingdom citizens' attitude toward the world, that they are to be salt and they are to be light in the world. So today, we're going to look at the next set of verses that follows. And once again, today's passage really speaks to the issue of the heart of kingdom citizens, the heart of Christ followers. And so I titled this message, The Heart of, the, uh, of Those Who Live Like This. So before we get into our study, I want to open up our time in a word of prayer. And uh, I didn't do this last night because I, I just didn't think about it, but I want, to, I want to pray for a young lady. Her name is Mackenzie Lewick. She is a, was, a, was a student in Peggy Malpey's <clears throat> class some time ago. Peggy attends our church. She was here last night. But Peggy notified us on Friday, um, Mackenzie who was here last weekend for uh, some kind of an event, a family event, uh, flew back home to Salt Lake City on Monday. As soon as she arrived at the airport, she texted her mom and said, hey, I'm back. And then she caught a, a lift. And then that was the last time anyone had seen her. So uh, just heartbreaking. Mackenzie is only 23 years old. She's the, the same age as my daughter, Kylie. And, and just to think that she's suddenly disappeared and police are looking for her and they organize search parties and all her friends and family are worried and I can't I can't, I can't imagine if, if a family member of yours didn't come home um, it, would, it would just be I can't even th I can't even imagine what that'd be like right so let's pray that Mackenzie will come home all right that they find her well and safe and that she would be back with her family um, this day all right let's we'll pray for that we'll pray for our, our time together father 
you know, we realize every single time we get together, we're just reminded of how, how bad things are, are in the world. We, we talk about that here. And, and that's why being here is so important. That's why our faith is so important. Because at, at the end of the day, our faith in you is all that matters. And God, right now, we just, we cry out to you on behalf of Mackenzie. God, we don't know her. I know that Peggy just loved this young lady. And God, we cry out to you and ask, God, that you would bring Mackenzie home safely and well. We, we have no idea where she's at, but you know. And God, we pray that you'd lead authorities and you'd lead her family and you'd lead her back uh, to her family. God, be with her now. Encourage your heart. Strengthen her. And Father, if someone took her, work in them that they would let her go. We cry out to you on, on her behalf. And Father, we cry out to you now too. God, that you would work in our own hearts as we, again, look once more at the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. And I pray, Father, that I would simply be a vessel of yours to communicate your truth. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would change us. God, I pray that you would help us to, to comprehend all that you had to say, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount. So thank you, Father. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I want to begin. I've got a riddle for you, okay? I love riddles. <clears throat> so <clears throat> in order for you to follow along, I, want to, I put the riddle here up on the screen. So here, here it goes, all right? Once upon a time, there was a perfect man who met a perfect woman. And after a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding. And their life together was, of course, perfect. One snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, this perfect couple was driving uh, down along a winding road when they noticed someone along the road who was in distress. Well, being the perfect couple, they stopped to help. It was Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. Not wanting to disappoint any children on the eve of Christmas, the, couple, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys in their car, and soon they were driving along delivering the toys. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated, and the perfect couple and Santa Claus were in a terrible accident. Only one of them survived. Who was it? All right, that's the riddle. Who was it? There was an accident. There were three in the car. Only one survived. Who survived? Well, let me give you the answer, all right? Now, this is not my answer. This was the answer that came with the story, all right? So don't get mad at me for the answer, all right? Who's the only one who survived the accident? It was the perfect woman. It was the perfect woman. Actually, she's the only one who existed in the first place because everyone knows that there's no such thing as Santa Claus, and everyone knows that there's no such thing as the perfect man. Okay, all you ladies, go ahead and apply. Go ahead. Don't worry, guys. We get, we get a comeback right here. In response to this story, someone posted, so if there's no perfect man and there's no Santa Claus, that means that the perfect woman was driving. <laughs> Which explains why there was a car accident in the first place. All right, guys, go ahead. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> the moral of the story is, there are no perfect people, right? And I think to that we can all agree. There are no perfect men and there are no perfect women. Now, in the passage we're going to look at today, one of the topics that Jesus addresses 
is that of perfection. He talks about perfection. And the key to understanding our passage today is context. Remember that. You always got to look at the big picture. What's the big picture? All right, so let me give you the big picture. And this isn't just for this particular passage, but really it applies to the whole, the whole thing, the entire Sermon on the Mount. So here's the big picture. For at least 1,400 years, from the time of Moses to the time of Christ, that's about 1,400 years, at least 1,400 years, the Jews lived under the Mosaic Law. Remember that you're probably familiar with the fact that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He gave him Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. But God didn't give, if you recall, God didn't give Moses just Ten Commandments. He gave him a total of 613 commandments or laws on the mountain. He gave him all these laws, 613 of them. And, uh, and this was how the Jews were to live their lives. You, they were to live their lives according to commandments, according to laws. There were so many commandments to live by that the Jews actually needed lawyers to help them figure out what they could do and what they couldn't do. And so that the laws can actually divide it up um, into three main categories. There were the moral laws, there were judicial laws, and there were ceremonial laws. And all these laws, over 1,400 years, gave rise to various religious sects within Judaism. For example, there was a group known as the scribes. The scribes, and you're going to read about them here in this passage. But their primary responsibility was to study the law and to transcribe it and to copy it. So they would copy the scripture. They didn't have, they didn't have printing presses back then. They didn't have copy machines back then. So their job was to copy the law. They would copy it and recopy it and copy it and recopy it and then hand it down to the next generation so that they would have it. And they were very meticulous. I mean, they, they, they did their work very, very carefully, transcribed it perfectly. In addition to the scribes uh, um, transcribing, they also interpreted the law. The scribes would interpret the law. It, here's how the scribes' work was described by uh, Pastor John MacArthur. He wrote, and I'll put it up here for you. He wrote, for example, the Old Testament law said that you couldn't work on the Sabbath. But the scribes said, all right, if we can't work on the Sabbath, then what's work? And so they had to determine what work is. And they decided, first of all, that work was to carry a burden. So you, can't, you couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath day. And then they said, well, what is a burden? Well, let's decide what a burden is. And the scribal law put down, a burden is food equal to the weight of a dried fig. Right, a burden is food equal to the weight of a dried fig. That's a burden. Or a burden is enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Or a burden is milk enough for one swallow. That's a burden. Ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. All that stuff was the limit. Anything beyond that is a burden. Right, so this is what MacArthur wrote. Now, the scribes, therefore, would spend countless hours, countless hours debating what you could and couldn't do and how to apply the law, how to apply the law on, regarding the Sabbath and everything else. Regarding the Sabbath, for example, they argued that uh, about a woman, whether she could wear a brooch on the Sabbath. And it all got down to how much the, bur- the, the brooch weighed. If the brooch was too heavy, then it would be a burden. And if it was a burden, then it would be work. If it was work, then they couldn't wear it on the Sabbath. They tried to figure out, for example, whether a woman could wear a wig or a hairpiece on the Sabbath. But it all got, to, got down to how much that wig weighed. If that wig, wig weighed too much, then it was a burden. And if it was a burden, that would be work. And if it was work, then they couldn't do it on the Sabbath. They tried to figure out whether a man could wear dentures or, or false teeth. But it all got, got down to how much that, those false, false teeth weighed. If it weighed too much, then it was a burden. If it was a burden, then it was work. If it was work, then they couldn't do it on the Sabbath. That's kind of what they got into. It was all about works. And so in addition to the 613 laws, 
the scribes came up with thousands and thousands of these little regulations, all of these do's and don'ts and all these restrictions that were connected with the law as to what the Jews could and couldn't do. Second group that arose from the giving of the law were the Pharisees. And you've heard about them. The Pharisees were, were this group of religious leaders who prided themselves on obeying the law. Oh, we are the doers of the law. We keep the law. And they pride themselves. They'd like to pat themselves on the back and say, look at what a good job we're doing. What about you? And they'd point their finger at you saying, how come you're not doing all these things? How come you're not keeping up with us? And so that's, what, that's the Pharisees. And they were, they were legalistic, right? So, so that's kind of the big picture, all right? That's kind of the big picture. For 1,400 years since the time of Moses to the time of Christ, the law was a big deal to the Jews, but their devotion to the law and to God had nothing to do with their hearts. It all had to do with what they did. And it was all external. It was all about their works. It was all about trying to do these laws so they could be perfect. And if they were perfect, then they would be right in the eyes of God. They would be acceptable to God. And then all of a sudden, after 1,400 years, Jesus shows up. He shows up. And he proclaimed the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And right out of the gate, the Jews wanted to know, who is this guy? And what does he think about the law? What is his position on the law? This guy was teaching in the, in, in the synagogues. And they wanted to know if he was going to change up all those laws. Is he going to mess with our laws? What's he talking about here? And so picking up right where we left off last week, here's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, you can stop right there. That's a mouthful, right? First thing I want you to do here, grab a pen. There's a pen in front of you. If you're sitting in the front row, grab one behind you. But I want you to underline in your Bible or on your notes. Again, bring your Bibles to church if you can. Underline law or the prophets in verse 17. All right, underline law or the prophets. Now, I've mentioned to you in previous messages that the phrase law or the prophets or law and the prophets is a phrase that appears 12 times in the New Testament and it always refers to the Old Testament. So the law and the prophets refers to the Old Testament scriptures. The law and the prophets refer to the, for the law, for example, specifically refer to the Mosaic laws, all 1613 laws, which are written about in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the prophets were those who came after the law, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and, and all the 12 minor prophets who came and taught on the law and affirmed the law. And so whenever Jesus or anyone ever referred to the law and the prophets, it always referred back to the Old Testament. When Jesus burst onto the scene 2,000 years ago, he started teaching in the synagogues, and right away the Jews wanted to know what his thoughts were about the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. And right here in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells them, straight out, he tells them that he didn't come to dismantle the law. He didn't come to rip the law up and tear it all up. He didn't come to change it. He said the old, in fact, he said the Old Testament scriptures are good. It's good. He said the opposite of what they were thinking. If you look at verse 19 again, he said, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches the others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what Jesus was saying, don't mess with the law. It's good. The law is good. Don't mess with it. 
And rather, rather than coming to abolish the Old Testament, Jesus said he came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 17, circle the word fulfill. Now, in order to understand what Jesus meant when he said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, you've got to know what the law and the prophets uh, was intended to accomplish. You've got to know what it was intended to accomplish, and that is it was intended to accomplish the total righteousness of people so that they could enter into heaven. In other words, if, if somehow you were able to keep all of these 613 commandments, all these 613 laws and all the, the restrictions and regulations and the do's and don'ts that went with it, you would indeed be perfect. You would be perfect. You would be righteous, and therefore you would be able to go to heaven and stand before God if, if you could keep all these laws. It would lead, you, lead people to righteousness. That's why Deuteronomy 6.25 the next verse here says, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. I mean, we would be perfect. We would be righteous if we could do all these laws. And then Romans 9, 31, the apostle Paul said in the New Testament, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law, right? It, the law was intended, the law of the prophets was intended to make you righteous so that you could appear before God. The law was intended to lead people to righteousness. So you can write that one down. The Jews strived, they strived to be righteous by their works. By their works. You know what the problem was? The problem was the Jews couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't reach the standard. They couldn't fulfill the law. They couldn't, they, could, they failed. They couldn't hit the mark. It was impossible for them to obey all of the Mosaic laws, partly because there were so many of them, but also because they were sinners. They were sinners. They were imperfect people. They couldn't keep up with all the laws. It would be like if the, if the government of the United States passed a law requiring that everyone in our country provide a valid solution to this equation. And if you can't provide a valid solution to this equation, you will go to jail. Right? That's the law. Solve that or you will go to jail. Valid solution. Zero times what equals 50. What's the solution? Well, if our, if our government made this the law of the land and said everyone's got to come up with a valid solution, otherwise you're going to go to jail, what would happen? We'd all go to jail. Right? We'd all go to jail because there is no solution for this equation. Because zero times, you know, zero times, uh, you multiply, you can't multiply any number by, zi by zero and get 50. It's just not going to happen, right? Similarly, there wasn't any way for the Jews to reach the standard of righteousness. It was impossible for them to reach the standard of righteousness as set forth by the law. It was impossible. Yet this is what the scribes and the Pharisees endeavored to do. I mean, they tried so hard to do all of the laws so they could be righteous before God and they could be acceptable to God. They tried so hard so they could be declared righteous. You see, for all of them, it was just, it was all about the externals. It's all about works. But they couldn't do it. But you know who did it? Jesus did it. He did it. Verse 17 says he came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law. And according to verse 18, his fulfillment extended to the smallest Hebrew characters, the iota and the dot, which, which basically was another way of saying he filled every bit of it. He fulfilled every extent of it. His fulfillment was complete. It was thorough. 
He didn't miss a thing. He fulfilled all of the moral laws. He fulfilled all the, of the judicial laws. He fulfilled all of the ceremonial laws. And he fulfilled the law not so much by what he did, but by who he was. He fulfilled the law not so much by what he did, but by who he was. He, he fulfilled the law. He met the standard of righteousness and perfection because he was perfect. He was perfect. In every sense of the word, he was the perfect man. He was the standard, and he fulfilled the law. Second, he fulfilled the law by fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Some Bible scholars put the number of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus in the hundreds. One key Old Testament prophecy that, I wanna, that Jesus fulfilled uh, was one in which he promised the new covenant. I want to show this one to you. This is fascinating. This prophecy is found in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. And I wish I had time to show you every single prophecy in the Old Testament. There's so many of them. I wish I could show you every one of them that he fulfilled. We just don't have time. But I want to show you this one that had to do with the new covenant. Take a look at this prophecy, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. All right, so stop right there. This, what, is, what is verse 32 talking about? Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. What was that? That was the Mosaic covenant, right? That was the Mosaic covenant. Well, it says here they failed to keep. They failed to fulfill. So the prophecy that, the, that uh, is promised here is, is that the Messiah would inaugurate a new covenant. He was going to give us a new covenant. It wouldn't be anything like the old covenant. It wouldn't be anything like the Mosaic covenant, which they couldn't keep no matter how hard they tried. This was a new covenant. This was completely different. What would it look like? Take a look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See the difference? Underline, put my law within them. Underline that. And then underline, write it on their hearts. He was going to, the promise, the prophecy was he was going to internalize the law. He was going to write it on their hearts. And righteousness would be theirs forever by faith, not by works, not by what they did. And that's why the, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3.22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. This righteousness is given to all through faith. In other words, by simply believing that Jesus was the Son of God is the Son of God. And by believing that he died on a cross for our sins and was raised from the dead, righteousness would be yours by faith. And the new covenant made it possible for anyone, for anyone to attain what the Jews failed to attain, and that is righteousness before God. Perfection, in other words, so that we can enter into the presence of God. So write this one down. I can be righteous. Any other, the synonym for that? I can be perfect by faith. We can be perfect by faith. Do you realize what it means? Do you realize 
Church, get this, okay? Get this. Do you realize what it means to be righteous before God? Let me tell you what it means. It means that when God looks at you, because of your faith, when, when God looks at you, he doesn't see someone who is flawed. He doesn't see, some, he doesn't see damaged goods. He doesn't see someone who is messed up and broken. He doesn't see someone who is corrupt and wretched and arrogant. He doesn't see someone who is insecure and afraid and someone who is selfish and vile and wicked, someone who is disgusting and perverted and hopeless and repulsive. He doesn't see that when he looks at you. If you have faith, because when you, if you have faith, what he sees is someone he loves. He sees someone who is perfect, someone who is holy, someone who is saved, someone who has been forgiven of all of their sins, someone who has been sealed by the Holy Spirit, someone who has been made brand new. He looks at you and he says, you are brand new. You are a new creation in Christ. You are my son or daughter. You've been adopted into my family. You've been made in my image. You've been redeemed and restored. You are holy and blessed. You are full of promise. All because of our faith. Simply because of our faith. That's how he sees you and me. And I I don't know about you, that just blows me away. This blows me away because you know what? I know how messed up I am. How messed up are you? Right? I know how messed up I am. And that's why it is so amazing to me that simply because of our faith in Jesus Christ, I can stand before him and be righteous and acceptable. I can be acceptable to him. And it has nothing to do, it has nothing to do with what I do. It has nothing to do with how educated I am. It just has nothing to do with how much money I have. It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with my ethnicity. It has nothing to do with any of that. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, you will stand righteous before God. And that's, how I, that's the only reason why we get to enter into heaven. Why after it's all said and done, we get to go to heaven. It's amazing. It just astounds me. You know, I... I hate scary movies. I don't go see horror flicks. The last horror flick that I saw was over 30 years ago. The movie was called Aliens. Anybody remember that? Aliens. Starts Sigourney Weaver, who played a character named Ellen Ripley. And it was about the mysterious disappearance of an entire colony of people who were, who were working and living on a planet called LV-426. And when all these people disappeared... They couldn't locate them. They sent in the Marines. Hoorah, right? They sent in the Marines. The Marines can find them. The Marines can figure out what happened. And when the Marines go in, they discover that the people have been captured alive by these extraterrestrial beings. <laughs> not E.T. Take that one down, Carla. That's not the right one, right? But, and what they discover is that these aliens, what they do is that they implant their embryos into these human hosts. And so these human, these human beings are like cocoons. And once the, the embryo reaches gestation and then they're ready to come out, I mean, the, the alien baby just bursts out of the, 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 the people's body, killing them instantly. 
So one minute, some, you, you know, one minute, some guys are just talking. They're just having a casual conversation about everyday stuff like how the angels beat the Dodgers recently. And the next thing you know, this, this hideous creature, this hideous creature with a high-pitched scream just explodes out of the guy's chest. Right? And it was just, of course, there's blood and guts everywhere. And I'm not going to show you any of the videos and any of the pictures because it's too horrible. But it's just terrifying because you're just, okay, watch the, oh, you know, and then you just, it just scares the, the heck out of you. And so uh, you don't expect it. And, and I, I, was, I was at home watching it by myself. I was a bachelor. And I was watching it on the VCR, right? And I had to stop it every five minutes because I couldn't. Like, okay, I got to catch my breath here. This is really, uh, you know. And then I'd turn it on again. I have to stop it again. Even though the, the movie is pure science fiction, it, it illustrates a very uh, sobering spiritual truth. And that is that we all have something evil lurking inside of us. We all have something evil looking, lurking inside of us. And that's exactly what Jesus addressed in these next set of verses. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 21. He said, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, there remember that your brother has something against you, <clears throat> leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Again, a, a whole mouthful of things. But once again, Jesus, in this passage, he focuses remarks on the heart. It's all about the heart. It begins in verse 21 when he says, You have heard that it was said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, let me tell you what this means real quick. The, the phrase, those of old, You've heard it said uh, to those of old. That, that does not refer to the writers of the Old Testament, right? That doesn't refer to the writers of the Old Testament. It doesn't refer to Moses, for example, right? It, those of old refer to the Jewish rabbis like the scribes who were students of the Old Testament scriptures <clears throat> who would study it and devise all these traditions and regulations uh, to go along with the laws. And so Jesus pointed, out, pointed this out to the, the fact that these ancient scribes, these ancient Jewish scribes, said, he just pointed out that they, they said, you shall not murder, if, and if you do so, you will be held accountable, right? And this, and this was just his way of introducing a very, uh, the subject, a very serious subject of murder, the sanctity of life. You know, ever since the very first murder, when Cain murdered his brother Abel, billions of people, I believe it's, I would estimate billions of people have died at the hands of others. According to the World Health Organization, someone is murdered every 60 seconds, so in the what, more than about 45 minutes that we've been here, 45 people all around the world, somebody's been murdered. 45 people have been murdered the last 40, 45 minutes that we've been here. And they estimate that every year a half a million people are murdered around the world. Half a million people are murdered every single year. Two-fifths of them are young people between the ages of 10 and 29, which means every year 200,000 young people between the ages of 10 and 29 are murdered. Someone takes their life. My cousin's son, Greg, was murdered by a drive-by shooter 
when he was 24 years old, I had to do his funeral. I have a, an old church friend, our old church. She was raped and murdered in the stairwell of a parking garage in downtown Los Angeles. In fact, when she didn't return home from work, um, the pastor called me and asked if I could call some of my friends at the LAPD and see if we can get an expedite the, the uh, investigation, and they found her dead in the stairwell. Chicago, which is, I mean, right in our own country. I mean, every day, I mean, people, thousands of people are, are murdered every single year. Chicago, which is in the heartland of America, has been dubbed a war zone because there are so many killings in that city every single week. Last year, the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, suggested that Chicagoans needed a, quote, moral compass, unquote. He said that we need a moral compass. He said, he actually said, we need to know good from bad and wrong from right. And Emmanuel, the mayor suggested that faith, quote unquote, faith and family and character development were necessary to begin to curb the violence in Chicago. And I believe he's on the right track. He was on the right track. You see, the, the reason people murder Jesus said it right here. The reason people murder is because of the evil that is lurking within them. It's because of our hearts. In fact, the apostle John said in 1 John 3.15, Therefore, who, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. In Jesus' economy, you don't need to kill someone. You don't need to take their lives to be a murderer. All you need to do is hate them. And if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. That's what Jesus was getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount. He, I mean, he cut right to the chase. In verse 22, he said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, circle that word angry, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, circle the word insults, whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool, circle you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, I don't need to explain to you what angry means. Angry, we, we all know what anger is. But the word insults here in the Greek is the word raka, and it means, it means stupid. That is, whoever, whoever calls someone stupid, and then the word fool here is the Greek word moros, which is where we get the word moron, brainless. Uh, the idea here is that if you are angry, you call, and you call people names, you call them names, then you'll be liable to the, to, to the hell of fire because it is tantamount to murder. That's what he's saying. This is your attitude toward people. This is what you call people. If you're angry toward people, if you hate people, then it's tantamount to murder. So it's all about the heart. You can write that one down. Jesus is concerned with my heart. He was concerned with the, the heart of the Jews because he knew that what they were doing was all external. But he said the real problem is internal. He knows that what is in, and he knew that what was internal will express itself, will manifest itself, manifest itself externally. What is in the heart will lead to our outward actions. It all starts here. It all begins here. So the question that I would ask you is, what is the condition of your heart? What's the condition of your heart? Something I'm, I'm asking myself all the time. What's my heart like? Do you have hate in your heart? Do you have anger in your heart? Do you have prejudice in your heart? I mean, it really applies to everything, right? Not just murder. Do you have greed in your heart? It's all about the heart. And then Jesus gives us one more illustration concerning the heart. Take a look at verse 27. 
Starting in verse 27, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with, a lustful, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body will be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body will go into hell. In this section, Jesus speaks to the issue of adultery, right? Which is sexual activity between a married person and someone uh, other than his or her spouse. And this is, again, about the sanctity of marriage. Whereas the first illustration was about the sanctity of life, murder, this is about the sanctity of marriage. And hopefully, hopefully you all realize, you all know that the Scriptures forbids adultery. I mean, it, it's, adultery is forbidden by the Scriptures, Right? We're, we are not to commit adultery. It's the seventh commandment. Seven of the ten commandments. Seventh one was that we shall not commit adultery. That this is what God told Moses. Right? Yet, people don't seem to care. They don't seem to care about this one. It's as if more and more people are, are committing adultery. Every day. Uh, there's, a, there's a website dedicated to aiding and enabling and abetting people to commit adultery. I won't tell you the name of it. I've mentioned it before. But their motto is, life is short, have an affair. And I, I went to check. I didn't go on the website, but I just checked. And they have 50 million members. 50 million people have signed up and says, yeah, hook me up. I want to have an affair. I'm married, or I want to have an affair with someone who is married. It's crazy. In this passage, once again, Jesus ups the ante. He raises the bar, and he said in verse 28 that even if you look upon a woman, if you look upon a woman with lust, and I would add, if you look upon a man with lust, that qualifies as adultery. That's it. That's, that's adultery. You have committed adultery, he said, in your heart. And these are tough words. And it's hard to hear and it's hard to fathom because most of us, probably all of us, have struggled with lust at some point in their lives. I know that I have. Right? I, I've struggled with lust. And I want to say to you, sexual desires are good. They're good. They're given to us by God. God designed sex to be absolutely beautiful and to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. God gave that to us. But today, the motto is, anything goes. You can do whatever you want to do. Life is short, so have an affair. But that must not be our motto. That must not be how we live our lives. As kingdom citizens, we are called to a higher standard, higher than even the law itself. And in this passage, Jesus gives us a terrifying prescription for dealing with lust. He said, either pluck out your eye or cut off your hands. It was said of origin of Alexandria, as one of the early church fathers, that after he read this passage, he was so convicted by his own struggles with lust that he went out and had himself castrated. Now, I don't believe that self-mutilation was what Jesus had in mind here. If that's what he had in mind here, all of us would be blind and none of us would have any limbs. True? Right? That, that'd be true. So what did he mean? 
Well, Pastor John MacArthur put it this way, and I, li- I like what he said. I'll put his quote up here for you. He said, the, the solution to sexual impurity cannot be external because the cause is not external. He's right. The, the, the solution isn't external. The solution is pluck out your eyes and cut off your hands. And, and Jesus was exaggerating here to make a point. The cause is not um, external. The cause is internal. The cause is the evil lurking within us. When Rahm Emanuel announced last year that Chicagoans needed a moral compass to help curb the violence, um, he ignited a firestorm. Progressives in his, on the left were furious with him. They were furious. They, dem- they, they, demand- they actually demanded that he resign. He was their candidate. He was their mayor. They demanded he resign. And they said, we don't need morality. He says, All we, what we need is more money and more social programs. But I believe the mayor was right because, because murder and adultery and every other sin, for that matter, is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And the only remedy for a wicked heart, what's the only remedy for a wicked heart? Yeah, Jesus, that we get a new heart, right? That we get a new heart. And no one knew that better than King David, who committed both adultery and murder. He did them both. And he knew that what he needed was a new heart. That's why he prayed in Psalm 51, verse 10. I don't know if you know that, but Psalm 51 was written after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her son, had her husband murdered. He prayed, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. You see, the sum of the Sermon on the Mount, the summation of it is that Jesus set forth these two impossible standards. He set set out these two impossible standards in order that we might realize that we can't live the kind of lives he wants us to live. We can't do it without him. We need him. We need a new heart, and he is the only one who can give it to us. You can't go to UCLA and get a, get a heart transplant and say, I got a new heart now, and I'm a new person. No, that's not going to work, because that heart is dirty too. And we all need righteousness, not righteousness of our own making, but we need the righteousness that comes from faith. Right? So Jesus sets out these two impossible standards as if to say to all of us, we need him. We can't do this without him. And we can have all these things. You can have a new heart today. Do you know that? You can have a brand new heart today. You can be righteous before God today by faith. One last verse, Romans 4, verse 5. I like the New Living Translation, but people are counted as righteous. You are counted as righteous not because of their work, not because of what you do, but because of your faith in God who forgives sinners. It all gets down to this. Very simple thing. It all gets down to this. Do you believe? Do you believe that? Do you believe that by faith, if you simply put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will, be, you will get a new heart and you will be righteous before God? Let me close with this. Imagine the federal government passed another law. They like passing laws, right? They passed another law requiring everyone to solve this equation. All right? Everyone's got to solve this equation. If you don't come up with the answer to this equation, you'll be all exiled to Bakersfield, right? All right, and let me, I don't know if I can read this. Um, X to the third 
plus 3x squared plus 4 times 7 plus 5x minus x squared over x times x minus 3 divided by x minus 1 equals 2x times x minus 1 squared. You didn't know I could do that, did you? I can't. Nicole told me how to read that. What's the answer? All right, some of you engineers out there, Scott's sitting already, he's trying to figure this out, right? I know, I was waiting for that. Scott's taking a picture of this. I'm going to figure this out, but I'm going to tell you the answer. I know the answer. <laughs> Me, I know the answer. Anybody get the answer real quick, by the way? Some of you geniuses out there? The answer is four. All right, the answer is four. All right, so let's say that everything hangs on the answer, right? If you don't give an answer to the federal government by what time is it? By 10.30, all right, you got 25 minutes. If you don't give an answer by 10.30, you're gonna be carting away to Bakersfield for the rest of your life, right? Hope nobody's here from Bakersfield. Just... <laughs> and I said to you, hey man, you, don't, you can't figure this out. You, you, you're like me, you're not a math person. You, you have no idea what the answer is. I said, okay, here's the answer. It's four. What are you going to do? Will you give them the answer I gave to you? In other words, do you trust me? Or do you not trust me? How many of you trust me? <laughs> That's it? <laughs> That's it. Mark, do you trust me? <laughs> so the rest of you don't trust me. Wow. Well, the answer is four. It really is four. And again, I didn't know that. Nicole told me the answer is four, right? See, hope you have a nice time in Bakersfield, right? <laughs> Seriously, when it comes to being righteous, you just have to trust him. You just got to trust Jesus. You got to trust his word that what he said is true. That he was the son of God. That he died on a cross for your sins and he was raised from the dead. Not only that, if you put your trust in it, if you trust him by faith, he will give you a new heart. Today you'll be a brand new person. And for the first time, maybe the first time, he won't see you for all the junk in your life. He will see you as somebody who is perfect and righteous, righteous enough to go to heaven one day, righteous enough to be acceptable in his sight. Do you believe? Do you trust him? I hope you will. Let's close our time in prayer. I'd like for all of you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for one second here. It all gets down to that one question at the very end. Do you trust him? Do you believe? I'll ask you some more questions. Would you like a brand new heart? Because you know your heart is dirty? I don't think there's any question about that for any of us. We know what's on the inside. You know what's on the inside of you better than anybody else except God. I know how yucky my heart is. Would you like a new heart? Would you like for God to see you as righteous 
not because you are, but because of your faith, and because of your faith, you will be righteous. Would you like to be righteous before God? And why don't you say this to him right now, in the quietness of your heart, wherever you're at, just say to him, dear God, please forgive me of my sins. I bring my dirty heart before you, and I ask you to wash it clean by the power of your Holy Spirit. Today, I give you my life in faith. Today, I trust you. I believe you were the Son of God. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. I surrender my life to you. Do a work in me. Make me the person you want me to be. Will you say that to him? Say that to him. If you say that to him right now and you really mean it, this very moment, God will give you a brand new heart and you will stand righteous before him. Father, it just, it never ceases to amaze me. Just like that song that we sing, oh, how, how you love us, how you love us so that you would come up, Jesus, that you would come up with a whole new idea, a new covenant, that by faith in you, we could be declared righteous. And, and this is why, God, we can't work our way into heaven. We can't be good enough to get to heaven. We can't give enough money to get to heaven. We can't do enough good works to get to heaven. All of it will fall short. And so you tell us, simply by faith, how amazing is that? And Father, so today we want to come before you and express our faith in you. Give us clean hearts. And I, I pray, Father, that every day you'd clean our hearts because every day my heart gets dirty. So we confess our sins to you every day, that you would clean us every day. Help us to be righteous every day. And whenever we fail, we'll keep running back to you Pick us up, wash us off, receive us into your presence, and help us to be the people you want us to be. We can't do any of these things without you, Lord. So thank you, Father. Thanks for your love for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.